We are uh, in the middle of a summer series. We have three more weeks left in our series on worship. And then on August the 14th, we will be back in Romans. And we'll actually be sending out a little email reminder about our, our fall kicking back off into Romans with uh, some other information about ministries that'll be kicking back off. But I've entitled the sermon, A Surefire First Step Towards Sanctification. I probably would have said discipleship, except it didn't really go a surefire and step. So I, I kind of stay with the S's. Because I, I think people maybe are confused by this word sometimes, and I want to be clear. Sanctification is another word for uh, maturing in your faith, growing in your faith. Um, it's, it's our spirit responding to the spirit of God once we've put our faith in Christ, where God wants to grow us up in our faith. He wants to mature us in our faith. So just like parents, you know, as your kids get older, you give them more opportunities, more challenges, more, uh, more chores maybe, you know, more things to do so that they can grow and learn to stand on their own two feet, that sort of thing. So when we say sanctification, that's what we're talking about. God's interaction with his word and with his Holy Spirit with our hearts. And so what we're going to do for uh, this Sunday and next Sunday is kind of wrestle with this question of what's the foundation for my spiritual growth? That's fundamentally the question. And I think it's an important question because we live in a, in a generation, in a day and age, probably a lot of it has to do with technology, but the pace of life is just brutally fast. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you try to slow your life down a little bit, if you try to kind of ease off the accelerator, um, it it feels pretty difficult. Whether it's kind of the simpler things of life or the more significant things of life, we live with a very fast pace, and along with that fast, fast pace comes, I want it right now. I need the gratification right now. I'll give you a really goofy example of that. We're in the drive through at McDonald's with Jordan and Nate and, my, and I, my two sons, about a month ago. And you pull up to the drive through and it's not a person that asks you for your order anymore. Did you know that? Did you know you're talking to a computer in Phoenix, Arizona, when that lovely voice comes on and says, would you like to try a new smoothie? But that is, That's a computer. And then you give your order, and it puts it up on the screen. And then the live voice comes in and says, now it's this and this and this. Is that right? They did that to speed up the drive through time at McDonald's because apparently it's not fast enough for us now, right? So then you go up to the window, and I get up to the window. And we were getting some breakfast before we went to the – we were going to play golf one day, and, and we're getting some breakfast, and the gal says at the window, your hash browns aren't done yet, right? So could you pull up just a few feet, and we'll bring them out to you, right? Well, I find out from Jordan who says – I don't know how he knows this stuff. He says, you know why they're asking you to do that? Because McDonald's corporate has a time that every car has to stay at the window. It's got to be there or less. And so if you stay there and wait for your hash browns, you mess up their time. So by moving you 20 feet ahead, they save face, and you have to wait until they bring the hash browns. To which I replied, next time this happens, when they say, will you move up? I'm saying no. I'm staying right here. To which my older son, Nathan, who has a lot of restaurant experience, said, well, that's a great way to get somebody to spit on your hamburger before they put it out the window to you. (laughs) But McDonald's wants to give it to you now. Why? Because you've got to have it now. Well, I don't know about you, but I find that I'm kind of like that with my faith. God, I want to grow up now. <laughs> I, I want to know all the answers now. I, I want to be able to understand theology to, to, to a depth that, that I, I probably don't even have enough experience yet, but, I, but I've got to have it now because our attitude is one of hurry up and, and get it. And I, and I think we see it in all of society, and we see it in our faith as well. How many people have Facebook? 
You have Facebook? I look at on my Facebook page this morning. I have 431 friends. I don't know 431 people. I don't know how that's possible. I think my daughter is adding friends to my Facebook page. I don't even have to know you, and I can be your friend. Instant gratification. God, I don't really have to know you. I don't have to know too many details about Scripture, but I want to make sure that you and I are okay. And so when I say surefire first step, it's because I think we need to perhaps back up a little bit. And we need to stop and think about how are we really dealing with our growth in Christ in a way that is, that is godly and is biblical and will allow us to truly grow in our faith, to truly mature over, over you know, a period of time. It should be no surprise to us that with this you know, desire for instant discipleship, so to speak, without pain, without struggle, it should be no surprise to us that Christian marriages fail almost as often as marriages outside the Christian faith. That, that children that grow up in Christian homes aren't necessarily grasping the truth of the gospel any more than kids that don't. That, that adult believers are struggling with temptation and, and, and with a lack of prayer in their life. And I don't oversimplify, but it's almost because we can't just sit down and be still for a little while. And I believe the starting point for our growth in Christ, for our maturing in our relationship, is to stop a bit and to do two things which we're going to see in this passage this morning. The first thing is that we, we see God for who he is. And the second thing is that we see ourselves in the light of God's glory. I believe that's the foundation for our growth in Christ. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be in this passage for two weeks. So during this week, I'd encourage you to continue to read the whole chapter. Uh, this morning, we're just going to look at the first seven verses. So hear the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim literally translated out of Hebrew simply means the burning ones. So these are angelic, fiery beings. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a hurry-up world. We live with a breakneck pace of life that is detrimental to our spiritual well-being. We... uh, put on our iPod and, and listen to a sermon in between going to, to, to yoga class and getting the kids to swim lessons in the Cardinals game on Tuesday night. We, we are so rushed. And we've got to close that next business deal because if we don't, someone else will. And there's very little relational about our world anymore in the truest sense. We don't comprehend the time that it takes. We simply friend a person on Facebook and And now we're buddies. We don't know what's going on in their lives. They don't know what's going on in ours. 
we have 20-second conversations. And Father, there's a lot of marvelous things about living in this day and age, but at, at times, even with all of this technological connection, uh, we're isolated. And we, we rush through our faith as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, perhaps this morning in this word, uh, not that the goal is just to slow down across the board, but, Lord, that you would slow our hearts and our minds down enough to, to really stop and consider where we are in our relationship with you. For those of us that call ourselves disciples of Jesus, uh, Lord, perhaps it is good for us to go back to this passage and to be reminded about who you really are and then to see ourselves in the light of your glory. Father, you know I can't do justice to this passage. Lord, you know my sin. I pray that you would forgive me. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want each one of us to hear this morning. Father, help us to worship you with our minds. Lord Jesus, would you come and teach us? We pray in your name. Amen. See God for who he is. See myself in the light of his glory. That's where we're going this morning. Just two points Uh, And that's Isaiah's experience. Isaiah, around 720, 740 B.C., uh, is a prophet in the southern kingdom uh, in and around the area of Jerusalem during the reign of four different kings. And this is his inauguration into the ministry. Before Isaiah does anything, before he becomes the prophet Isaiah, he has this vision and he sees God for who God is and that he sees himself in light of God's glory. And therein, I think, are the, are the initial foundational steps for your sanctification and for my sanctification, for our growth in our relationship with God. So Isaiah sees God for who he is. In verse 1, Isaiah writes this, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He doesn't say, I saw my pal, I saw my friend, I saw my buddy. He says, I saw the Lord. Scripture invites us into an intimate relationship with God, but it also invites us into a relationship of respect, a relationship of awe a relationship of worship. The series this summer is worship. The word worship literally means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to to fall on the floor before another. And so when we say we're worshiping God, we're saying we're bowing before who? We're bowing before the Lord. And Isaiah says that he was seated upon a throne. Now, when you think about a king, you think about a monarch who is ruling and reigning. When, when, the, when the world is at, when the country is at peace, when they're, when they're not being invaded, when the law is, is being enforced, when people are being cared for, when things are going well, what does the king do? The king sits and he reigns. It shows his position of authority. He's not up leading the army because he's got to squelch a rebellion. Uh, he's not busy over here with the agriculture minister figuring out about how they're going to you know, deal with the farming crisis. When things are all right and the king is in control, he is seated. And it should not be missed by us this morning that the Lord is pictured as the one who is sovereign. He is high and lifted up. He is above everything else that is around him. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is majestic. But as Isaiah also says, I saw that the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, uh, when we think of trains now, we probably think of like wedding, wedding gowns because like, uh, the gal the, the, in England that just got married, I should know her name, but um, the, the, she's now a princess now. What's her name? Yeah, exactly. Um, so her train was like really long, right? And I do a lot of wedding ceremonies. And when we're at the rehearsal, I always say to the father before he gives the bride away, now make sure when you go back to sit down with your wife that you don't step on your daughter's train and kind of, you know, give her whiplash as you're going back. So we think of it in those terms. But 
in a monarch, the train is, is, is even twice as long. It's even more flowing. And typically, it's in some kind of lavender or, or royal purple uh, to signify authority and leadership. And so Isaiah says the train, just the trail end, not the whole robe itself, just the, the very end part of it filled the entire temple. Do you get a, start to get a picture of the majesty and the glory of what Isaiah is seeing? He's not seeing, you know, the kind of the king off there in, in the distance, and he kind of looks like he's in charge. He's seeing one who is ruling and is reigning, and even uh, the garb in which he is adorned is overwhelming. But notice where Isaiah says it flows. He says, I saw it flow and fill the temple. I thought we were in a th- throne room. I thought we were at the palace. I thought we were at the place where the, the king is seated, seated upon his throne, and we are, yes, but guess where that throne is? It's in the middle of the temple, and what does the Old Testament temple represent? It represents God's dwelling with his people, does it not? When Solomon built the temple, it was to demonstrate that God was in the midst of his people. When the Israelites were kind of wandering all over the place, they're out in the desert, they kept getting it more wrong than they got it right. They had the tabernacle, right? And the tabernacle sat in the middle of the the campsite and the 12 tribes all around it. Why? Because God was in the center. And so just as Isaiah sees a majestic Lord, a king, a sovereign, a monarch who is ruling and reigning above all else, he also sees one who is in the center of his people. God has not abandoned us even in his glorious state. This awesome power is centered among the people of God, and God engages with his people. But also notice that he's the object of worship. Look at verses 2 and 3. We meet these, these, these fiery, angelic beings who have six wings that they, they have to use four of them to protect themselves from the glory of God lest it consume them. Think about that. That, that God's glory, would, they would literally be annihilated if they got too close to God. He's that glorious and that majestic and that awe-inspiring. So they cover themselves as they fly and they call back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of everything and every one. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What an amazing cry. What an amazing truth. And I would dare say that there are people in this room, myself included, who have had moments where we've doubted God's power, where we've doubted that, that he really is the Lord of everyone and everything. We look at the world, we look at, at the whole earth, and we, there have been moments where we have not seen the glory of God. But we've seen brokenness and we've seen decay and we see what sin has done to corrupt people as well as corrupt creation. And sometimes our response is not a response of faith, but a response of doubt. I mean, if we're really honest, wouldn't we say that? Say, Lord, sometimes I go, really? This is what's happened with your world? This is what's happened in my life? There are times where we struggle terribly to see the glory of God. And so Isaiah reminds us, friends, you've got to get refocused. You have to see God for who he is. And even the cry itself, even the the praise, the worship, shows an awesome display of power. Look at verse 4, where as these guys are crying back and forth to one another, as they cry out, the foundations of the threshold shook with the voice not of God, but just of of the worship leader. And the house was filled with smoke. This is an amazing vision, but it is a vision of our God. And Scripture gives us this vision because the Lord knows that we are prone to forget who he is. We are prone to forget his glory. 
We're, we're prone to, to get singularly focused on our little world and on the things that are going on, you know, within, you know, three miles of our existence and, and our radius, and, and we forget that God is in heaven, and he is the object of endless and ceaseless praise. And the first step in your growth and the first step in my spiritual growth is to see God for who he is. So we have to ask the questions, friends, do you, do you see this God often? Do you sit with the word of God? Do you meditate on these truths in scripture? Do you spend time in prayer and say, I'm not getting up until my mind has been reshaped and been refocused by the power of God's word and by his Holy Spirit so that I see God for who he is. You can't do that at the McDonald's drive-thru of Christianity. You can't do that in, in, in grabbing five minutes with the word of God. I'm not preaching a legalistic sermon, friends. I'm not saying you've got to get in there and sit down and study your Bible and do the right thing. I'm, I'm trying to open our minds. I think Scripture's trying to open our minds to the fact that until we get close to this God, whose glory would consume us, we will never have a passion to grow in our faith. And Isaiah is in the right place. And before God is ever going to send Isaiah to do one thing, he allows him to see his glory. Do I spend time dwelling and meditating and praying and studying his word in order to see his power and his majesty, his beauty and his grandeur. When, I, uh, when Cindy and I lived in Chattanooga a long time ago in the 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan, when he was president, came to town one time. And I don't know if you've ever seen, I've never seen a, like a president face to face. And I didn't see Reagan this time, but I was driving down the road when his motorcade came by. And so they made us all get off the highway. So I got off, but I got up on a ramp where I could watch it go by. And it's pretty cool. You probably, a lot of you have seen this before. Like the first motorcycle goes by and then there's like a minute and then the next motorcycle goes by. There's like 20 motorcycles, and then there's a whole bunch of Suburbans that, you know, have like bazookas and really cool stuff that can blow stuff up in them. And then there's like three of the limousines, and you don't know which one he's in because you can't see through the glass because it's all shaded. And then some more Suburbans with some great guns that blow stuff up. And then another motorcycle. I mean, it, it, I'm sure he was done with his speech before the last motorcycle passed me while I was waiting on the highway, but you kind of go, wow, that's pretty impressive. And I had a different kind of view of the, of the office of president after I saw just the train of his robe. You see where I'm going? Isaiah goes, this is spectacular. This is phenomenal. I've seen the Lord of hosts. I've seen the God of glory. And it changed him as a person. And it will change you and it will change me. The more we get close to this God of glory and see him for who he is, the more our hearts will be impacted by his presence, which will lead us to the second part of this, which is seeing ourselves in light of God's glory. How does Isaiah respond? He sees God, he sees his glory, he says, let's have a party. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Let's get everybody, get all the angels, come on down. This is so awesome, we gotta show this to everybody. That's not the response. Look at what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think this is one of the, the greatest confessions of sin in all of Scripture. Jeff mentioned earlier before we said the Apostles' Creed that we say creeds and we pray confessions to remind ourselves and to remind one another of, of God's glory and of his attributes. And that, that's true. You know, as we've studied worship over the summer, I know the different pastors have talked about different aspects of worship. And we very purposely said the, the, the Apostles' Creed this morning because I wanted us to speak it out loud because we need to remember who God is. But this is a prayer of confession. 
This goes beyond who God is. And and Isaiah now kind of turns and he looks inward and he stands kind of next to God. And he is discouraged, to say the least. Woe is me. That's not a term, you know. Does anybody say woe is me anymore? You know, you know kids, your dad comes home and he's had a tough day at the office. He goes, woe is me. You know, what are you talking about? Uh, let me put it in English. And in, in, in all seriousness, I'm not kidding around. I wish I were dead. You ever thought that? I mean, have you ever, not like, it's really hot outside today. Gosh, I wish I was dead. Have you ever really despaired that much? I wish I would die. Go read Revelation chapter 6 when Jesus' return is envisioned by the apostle John. People are crying out for the mountains to fall on them and crush them because they are so overwhelmed with A, the fact they, they got it wrong and B, that the king has returned in all of his glory. And Isaiah sees the king and he says, I wish I were dead. Why? For I am lost. In other words, it doesn't matter whether I live or I die because it's hopeless. I'm seeing me for who I am, and I'm seeing God for who he is. Checkmate. It's all done. And he goes on to explain, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He isn't talking about just saying bad things. We know from Jesus that out of the heart, the mouth produces what it says, right? So he's talking about his character. He's talking about who he is as a person. He's saying, as I look at the mirror and I see Isaiah and I look at all my, my fellow countrymen, I look at us as a group of people, we are hopeless. We, have, we, we fall so far short of this glorious God. We could never be in relationship with him. I would be better off dead than what I'm experiencing right now. I've seen it and all is lost. H.H. Rowley writes this about Isaiah's uh, proclamation. He says, When people fear before God, it is not the consciousness of humanity in the presence of divine power, but rather it is the consciousness of sin in the presence of moral purity. And Isaiah sees perfection in all that it can be. And he sees himself, and he's undone. You see, I started off by saying I think the the first problem we have is we don't see God for who he really is. We have too small a view of God. And that's that's kind of the first inhibitor to my growth in Christ. But the second one is equally as important is this. We think too lightly of our own sin. I don't look at myself in comparison to God as often as I should. I literally wrote down on my notes, not just so I would remember, how often do I sit with God in front of a mirror? How often am I really willing to see this God for who he is and then look at my own heart? Uh, again, Jeff mentioned earlier that Job, uh, who is, had this, the worst experience any human being's ever had, and he calls on God to come and give him an answer. And we've said that before. You know, God, I want to know why this has happened to me. Why has this happened to my child? Or why has this happened to my business? Or why has this happened to my marriage? Or why has this, this thing happened to our family? What, whatever the case may be, we've all had that kind of thing. Well, God showed up and he gave Job an answer. And he sat down with Job and he had a conversation. And he was kind, but he was firm. And he told Job the truth. And at the end, Job said, I heard about you, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. And I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. And you know what? Job still had boils all over his body. Job Job had not had his situation changed. His children were still dead in the ground. He had still lost everything he had owned. And yet when he saw God, all he could say was, I'm a worm. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, Apostle John and Jesus were like best buddies, right? When Jesus was on earth, John sees the resurrected, glorified Jesus, and, and he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
When's the last time I had that experience when I looked at myself in light of who God is? I got to go to Augusta a year and a half ago and watch practice round of the Masters. And I'm an okay golfer. I'm, I'm a very average okay golfer. I have shot in the 70s before, which is really, really good. I've also shot in the 100s before. But, but if everything falls together, I can have a pretty good round of golf. But then I went to Augusta and watched the guys who can really golf, and I despise my golf game. <laughs> I repent of my, of my nine iron in dust and ashes. I mean, I live amongst a group of guys that can't hit a golf ball. I mean, these guys are unbelievable. We're standing there. I'm, I'm like from this flag next to Stuart Sink. And he hits this shot from like 160 yards out around the tree and on the pin. It's just incredible. And then he looks at I'm standing there with my buddy Bruce Owens. He looks at us and goes, could we be having any more fun than this? And I'm like, no, unless I could do that. And then I'd be having a lot more fun, you know. When you see perfection, you kind of go, wow, ooh, that kind of, you know, I need to go to the driving range. <laughs> but there aren't enough spiritual driving ranges in my life to ever come close to the glory and the majesty of God. So why is it important that we see ourselves in light of God's glory? Because you're probably thinking, gee, Tom, thanks for cheering me up this morning. I feel real good about myself. You know, I've seen God's glory. That's wonderful. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of standing right there next to, to Isaiah, and, and it's hopeless, right? No, because it doesn't end with that verse. Look at verses 6 and 7. What does God do in response to Isaiah's confession? He sends one of the seraphim. He takes burning coal, and he touches his mouth. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Do you notice that Isaiah didn't ask for forgiveness? Do you notice that Isaiah didn't take the first step towards God? You know, people say, take the first step towards God and he'll walk towards you. That's crazy. It's not in scripture. It's just, it's the worst thing you could ever believe. When you're face down in the gutter and and I am hopeless and I am completely despondent and I would never even begin to suggest that God would forgive me, God reaches down and he touches me. And the picture of the burning coal is simply a representation of the coming Christ who's going to pay the price for my sin and for your sin so that we can rejoice in our relationship with God. When God shows us our glory, and he shows us our corruption, he does so because he's going to complete the vision with his mercy and with his grace. So we're not led to despair this morning. These really are the first steps of discipleship and sanctification, to see God in his glory and to despair of any self-righteousness so that I may rest in his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy to me. So we're not going to despair this morning but we are going to confess. So what we're going to do to finish up our our time in God's word this morning is we're going to have some time of prayer and we're going to start out and we're going to pray a corporate prayer of confession, uh, which will be on the screen. Uh, And just, you can just remain seated, but I'll invite you to to pray it out loud with me. If you're comfortable doing that, if you're not, that's fine. You don't, you don't have to, but it speaks of our culpability. It speaks of our sin. We're going to name it. We're going to, you're going to see words on the screen like gossip and, and other things like that. Uh, So we're going to confess that before God, we're completely undone and unworthy. But then I'm going to give you a time of silent prayer right after that. And I'm going to take it myself. I'm going to go sit over there for a couple minutes before we sing again. And I want you to not just dwell on your sin, but I want you to dwell for a moment on God's glory, on his perfection. And then I want you to just rest and be at peace spiritually in his forgiveness and in his grace. Because that's why he gives us this message in the first place. So let's put the prayer on the screen, and it's about three screens long. Uh, 
but let's pray together. Gracious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, your word has shown us that we are prone to idolatry and worshiping ourselves over you. In your mercy, you have shown us our need for a Savior. We confess to you and one another that we are guilty of believing a lie instead of the truth. We acknowledge that our self-inflicted spiritual blindness has resulted in a multitude of offenses against you and one another. We murder one another in our hearts. We gossip about each other. We lie and are full of envy and pride. We condemn those we believe to be evil while giving ourselves a free pass. We have offended you and have done great harm to our fellow man. In the name of godliness, we act with spite and malice towards those we deem to be unrighteous. Lord Jesus, be compassionate and allow us to see our sin for what it is. By your transforming power, remove the scales we have placed over our eyes. Confront us with your truth that we might turn back to you and seek your unlimited forgiveness. Make us uneasy and uncomfortable with the sin embedded deep within our hearts. Restore our passion for your grace. Empower us to love your truth and apply it to our lives. This we pray for your glory and for our good. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's have a time of silent prayer.